This is Customer Obsessed, the show that dives into the nitty-gritty challenges of entrepreneurship and genuine customer connection. I'm Erin Acevedo, writer and budding entrepreneur. And I'm Eric Barrage, co-founder of Blue Wolf and author of Customer Obsessed. In each episode, we explore the highs and lows of entrepreneurship, how to engage with customers, and what it takes to build a successful customer-obsessed business. Along the way, we'll interview other customer-obsessed business leaders to get their take on how to connect with customers. And we're not going to play it safe. We'll share heroic and inspiring customer stories along with truly ridiculous, cringeworthy ones, my favorite, as you join us on the road to customer obsession. And I'll be taking full advantage of having my longtime mentor in the recording booth and will be peppering Eric with the burning questions that I and every other entrepreneur and leader need answered. Ready to get customer obsessed? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Customer Obsessed. Eric, how are you? I am well. I'm doing great on this Friday. We're still in our uh, shelter in place out here in New York. I think you still are in California. Yep, yep. They've just relaxed uh, a couple of things around non-essential businesses going into phase two, as Newsom is putting it, but still trying to maintain social distancing as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe how time has like slowed down. You know, if I think back to even the holidays or I think back to the fall, like it seems like two or three years ago based on what's gone on the past couple of months. And we keep talking about this new normal. I think that's become kind of a coined term. So I got a question for you, Aaron. What's your view on new normal? Like what is the new normal going to be? I mean, first, I think that COVID has so completely disrupted our lives that we're all looking forward to that time when things do go back to quote unquote normal. So even as we're trying to grapple with the major changes that are rocking our former way of life. But honestly, to me, it feels weird to refer to anything as normal right now, even when we're talking about the future, like it's a misnomer. Because I think that talking about a new normal undercuts the gravity of the big changes that we're experiencing. You know, they're all uncomfortable, but part of me fears that framing things in terms of normalcy gives us permission to reaccept the former status quo with all of its environmental, social, and economic problems. And I don't want normal. I want progress and action. So we, we should get rid of the term normal. There is no new normal. There won't be right. a normal. Yeah, I like right. that. I like that. I'll give you my perspective on it. My kids are sick of Zoom. You know, I have three, I have two kids in college, a kid in high school, and they've literally spent the last two months trying to learn remotely over this new thing called Zoom that now society appears to be completely familiar with. I think it's it was interesting, like in the early days, people that had never done any remote collaboration thought it was really cool. It was this toy that you could just turn on and see pictures of people and all of a sudden have a conversation. But I think what we're learning is, as great as it's been and as useful a tool as Zoom is, it's not great for facilitation. You know, I've seen multiple Zooms where people are like talking over each other and no one knows each mm -hmm. other's role. And my kids are just like sick of it. They're like, dad, I can't learn this way. So we're hoping that they're all going to go back to school in the fall and they can get into an environment where they can learn again. And maybe it won't be normal to them because it's definitely going to be different. But I, I think back to um, the podcast that we had with Karen when she talked about remote facilitation and when she talked about how you truly have to define roles and you have to have facilitators 
and subject matter experts, and they have to really take the lead when you're in a remote environment. But I also think back to our days at IBM. You know, we were part of IBM IX, which was their interactive design group. And one of the things that IX did was they had these amazing studios that they built all around the world. And they had one in the heart of New York City at Astor Place, which had this incredible room with whiteboards that surrounded the room where it was basically a facilitation studio. It was a place where they performed design thinking exercises with customers and with employees. And literally in the back of my mind, I just see that room empty right now as like a wasted asset that is so powerful when we are in the mm -hmm. workplace and it's incomparable to trying to do things over something like Zoom. So this is actually all a big lead in folks because we have a really cool guest with us today. He is at the cross section of two things we love to talk about. One of which is we love to interview entrepreneurs and learn their stories and hear about how they're building companies. But the other thing we love to talk about is employee engagement and how that is key on the road to customer obsession and engaging employees through collaboration and engaging employees through things like design thinking is something that this individual is an expert at, and he's at the forefront of knowledge around visual collaboration. In fact, he's the CEO and founder of a company called Mural, which specializes in visual collaboration. It's a visual collaboration platform. So without further ado, I want to welcome our guest, Mariano Suarez-Batan. Mariano, how are you today? Very well. Thanks for asking. Greetings from California. Yeah, you're in California. I'm in New York. We're, uh, we're... You're outnumbered, Eric. I am outnumbered. <laughs> Two people in California. So we've become familiar with your company over the past few months. And it's fascinating to me that you've been doing this, I think, since 2014, if not earlier. And you're obviously in a different world all of a sudden that I have to imagine is creating more exposure for what Mural is all about. But Tell me about Mural. Tell me about your story. Tell me about how you got here and, and what the purpose of the company is. Definitely. And, and yes, it's been uh, more than that. We started in 2011. We launched the first version of the product in 2012, late 2012. So in startup years, that's like eternity, right? <laughs> uh, we were a little early, let's call it, for the market to be ripe for our solution. We come from video games. We had a video games company. The company got acquired by a company called Playdom and then by Disney. So I was working in Disney for a while and I was trying to come up with a new game idea and using the methods and tools that I had in order to help me with this. Early stages of this game idea was somewhat complex and I was using PowerPoint to collect ideas, inspiration and through that process and observing how I was thinking, how I was sharing this very early idea with people and how they were mostly judging instead of co-creating with me, I realized that I needed to build a safe place for ideas to grow, a place where people can think visually, think, collect inspiration, iterate on their ideas, and bringing others to add to them. And that was the initial hunch. But you call it an interesting year, which is 2014, which is where we were invited to do a startup in residence program inside IDO, which is a Mm -hmm. relatively well-known design firm, global design firm. And in a way, they helped coin the term design thinking and help it make it teachable, right? And, and also like help found the Stanford D School where a lot of people understood the design thinking process, which at its core is about 
multidisciplinary, customer-centric way of working, right? It's been happening for a while. We understood that people cared about innovation, of course, cared about using visuals to, to help them think and help them share ideas. But in IDEO, we saw two important things. One was the need for, again, this set of processes so people could follow, right? Like, or frameworks, right? Customer journey maps, empathy mm -hmm. maps. Another frameworks that are now even taught in MBAs and, and becoming standard of, of business model canvases, right? And on the other side, of course, the need for most companies that were IDEO clients to be able to do this with their distributed teams because agencies or consultancies have the luxury of being able to have people in the same room for a duration of a project, most of the time at least. But when we observed teams inside large corporations, well, they had people all over the world, literally in a team of six or 10 people. So marrying that need for a visual collaboration space in the digital realm so they can do it remotely has been something that we've been obsessing with for the last five to six years. And of course, because of the world going home in a way, it got accelerated in the last six weeks. Amazing, right? Like you weren't predicting a pandemic six years ago, but I'd be curious to hear what is your version of new normal as you watch the world come out of this over the next, you know, hopefully this, a short period of time, but certainly several months, if not longer, how do you think organizations are going to respond and how does Mural really play into the acceleration of their innovation under this new world? So we've been observing three trends for a while now. So one is this one that I mentioned before around methodologies for innovation, for entrepreneurship, for customer experience design becoming more and more standard, right? And people know them now. Most people in CX or EX know what a customer experience or customer journey map is, or an employee journey map is, or employee experience map is. And those methodologies are becoming standard. I mean, most companies, more teams in most companies are going to be using those. So having that common language available for everyone in the company is important. The other trend, of course, is around flexible digital first work, commonly known as remote work as an extreme version of that. We're now mm -hmm. working from home, but before this pandemic, we were also working from home. We were also working from the road. We were also working from customer offices, from our own offices. We were flexible, mobile workers, at least the knowledge workers, and in particular, the people that I call imagination workers, which is they use their imagination to picture the future and do something about it. So that was happening. And the other thing that was happening also was the touchscreens were becoming bigger and cheaper. So we were seeing locations like the one that you described on Astor Place in IBM, mm -hmm. starting to transform from post-it notes, sticky notes, Sharpies, and regular whiteboards into digital first environments. And big consulting services tax company, instead of doing those studios, call it the old physical in, in person, they already were digital first. So we were seeing all of these things happening. Of course, we couldn't predict the acceleration that happened in the last six weeks. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that this was going to happen one way or the other. These guys, this company in particular, joked around and was one of their value propositions in a way 
that they couldn't be talking about digital transformation with their clients without digitally transforming how they worked. And of course, there's value in paper prototyping, in prototyping physical environments and, and so on. But loving sticky notes or Sharpies because of the smell of Sharpies is not enough of a reason to keep them in the toolbox, right? So what I would predict, Eric, as a new normal in our particular part of the world, right? So I don't like to talk about everything because I don't know about everything. But in this particular case, I think that people are going to be comfortable going digital first because the brute force that there is right now have to get good at it fast. And when they go back to the office, it's going to be A, because of it's a good reason. This is like a value. It's like a tool that you have the office. But the other ones, when they get into the office, they're going to be popping up a digital document, hopefully mural, in which they're going to be working because of the benefits of working before the session, during the session, and after the session as a continuous process and not just an event-based innovation moment. You know, one of the things I think that's fascinating, if you think about the last you know decade or so in the technology space, everyone adapted to or adopted the whole concept of agile and wanted to get out of the world of building solutions through a waterfall methodology, which was too long and it was fraught with risk. And to your point, Mariano, you, you didn't have a prototyping component to it, which agile really brought to the table. It was always about working on a, a working model and a, and a product that you continue to add to. But the fallacy or the the issue with Agile was there wasn't like a really well-defined process around innovation and there wasn't a defined process around how to get the ideas out of the people's heads. So design thinking, I think, kind of came along as a way to fill that gap. And now that you all have a platform where you can do this in a distributed manner around the world, I think it makes everyone an innovator in an organization. If you can adopt a solution like Mural and you can teach them this new language of collaboration, then innovation can come from anywhere in the organization. And I know one of the conversations you and I had when we were prepping for this was this notion that a lot of organizations create innovation centers, which are physical spaces where you actually have to go and you have to either get on a plane or you have to live there and you have to organize it and put all the logistics together. And that makes innovation really expensive for a company. It also makes the company try to kind of predict where the innovation is going to come from instead of looking at your entire organization and saying, look, we're going to teach you how to be innovators and we're going to give you a common language and a platform that you can use to innovate. That's, I think, the most powerful thing about what you guys are doing. Yes, you want everyone in the company to be able to innovate, right? And there's iPhone innovation, right? Like super big. and But then there's like little things that people can do. There's another great thinker, author, Gene Litkash. He's a professor in Darden. And Gene claims that design thinking is a social technology that can do what total equality, quality management did bunch of decades ago, which is give the permission and the responsibility for everybody in the company to be in charge of quality. Similarly with design thinking and educating a lot of people with these methodologies, because you also need to equip them and enablement with permission, but also the space to practice this. And we'll go into that in a second. But she claims that if this is well spread, right, at least the ABCs of these methodologies, you have 
the superpower that in your company, anybody seeing something that seems broken could do something about it. And the thing that you highlight about innovation centers, right? It's that similar to the office, it's implying that work is not what you do. Work is where you go to, right? And we believe that work can happen anywhere. And if you just wait for people to go to the innovation center, first of all, there's no permission to innovate anywhere. Second of all, it's expensive, as you mentioned. It's also slow. We innovate next month when we get into innovation center. What? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and last, let's assume that you don't care that it's slow and, well, you're probably not getting good at it either. Right? Because if you're only practicing, quote unquote, innovation in innovation center every quarter, well, you know, I mean, it's like my golf, right? It's not going to be as good. So deliberate practice is also another important measure to build capability inside your company. Yeah, I love the way you say safe to innovate and permission to innovate. And I think, you know, if you're a company out there and you think you value innovation and you're thinking about your culture, no matter what technologies you use or, or no matter how you are organized, creating a culture that makes it safe and a culture where everyone has permission to innovate and where that's a real true value. I think some of the great technology companies that have come to existence over the last 20 years have used those values. And it's probably one of the reasons that we saw organizations like Google and Facebook and, and Tesla and others like migrate into these urban centers to try to get their people together to innovate. But that doesn't scale forever. To scale that innovation, you have to be able to do it in a distributed fashion and you should be able to do it all the time. You know, I think too, it also relates back, Mariana, to what you said at the uh, beginning of our conversation about judgment as you're presenting information versus a safe space for collaboration. And I think that's an integral part of having permission to innovate because if you're in a culture that prioritizes competition and one-upmanship over collaboration, well, that's not really an environment to foster innovation. And as we know, I mean, business people can be quite competitive even internally, right? Everyone wants to take those next steps. And I think that by embracing the ideas around design thinking and the tools that enable it across teams and across regions and everyone remotely, whatever it is, and opening up those spaces for innovation, you also open up the possibilities for collaboration without judgment, which allows for the better free flow of ideas because you're building trust and you're building these strong foundational relationships that allow people to not tear each other down, but still question one another to build the strongest product or customer experience or internal process as possible. What you just described made me think of two things. One is sometimes people in leadership say, oh, yeah, of course we have permission to innovate. Anybody can innovate. But for example, they set goals based on output instead of customer outcomes, mm. right? So you need to build that feature. You need to, we need to have that mobile app instead of, okay, we need to solve for customers reducing the time that they need to solve X, Y, Z. So instead of like, customer-centric outcomes or company-centric outcomes, they set goals in outputs. And that already like limits innovation. So that's an, on the top to down permissioning. Or it produces the wrong thing. 
because the output could actually be detrimental to the business, and you don't know that in advance. I've seen organizations put a comp plan in place or put a bonus plan in place that wants a certain output, and it turns out six, 12 months later, it didn't affect the business in a positive way, but they got a lot of it. That's why the outcome-based thinking is so important. And that's why when you start with a customer outcome, you probably can't go wrong as you start to set goals for the organization. And it's really hard, right? It's really hard to set outcomes because uh, sometimes they're hard to measure or you don't have a baseline. You need to be a little vulnerable, right? To be comfortable with, with that. So it's not easy. But the other thing, Erin, that you mentioned about the... Um, how to work in a way, right? So how to build on top of each other's ideas and, mm-hmm. and, and so on. Those things come with baseline, call it like training and also shadowing people that are really good at that. But mm-hmm. also a lot of practice, right? A lot of practices and a lot of people that are good facilitators helping through that process. The other day I was, I was on LinkedIn and I saw one of our big clients they were hiring for a facilitator. Said, what? Because it's something that we, we talk about and we believe in that facilitation as a core competency and facilitators as a professional, which is going to be full-time job, probably going to be project managers slash facilitators, right? But these mm-hmm. people are going to be focused on helping others achieve, right? And they may or may not belong to a team, probably not, but they're going to be helping that team perform and perform in this innovation better. And the beautiful thing about remote is that they can be anywhere, right? And no need to fly them over because generally we've seen people like being super demanded for this role once you spot one that is good mm. and everybody wants yeah. that person in that meeting, right? But facilitation is very important. You know what, Eric? Because your kids just experience at a young age what a bad meeting looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but they can't leave the meeting. Like you and I would just walk out of that meeting, right? We just leave. But it's tough as sure. a student they, they, to just they leave. They get savvy and put those avatars like in videos and the teacher will notice. There's going to be things like that. But the reality is they're not tired of Zoom. There might be some cognitive load right there, but they're tired of bad meetings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. And everyone in corporate America gets tired of bad meetings. So when you think about the future, you know, you've got a great customer base now. You obviously have a call to action with what's going on in the world and, and you have a brand out there. What is the future of the platform going to look like? What do you think the future of collaboration is going to look like? Where are some of your focus areas that your customers are looking for you to implement over the coming months and years? As I told you before, I mean, I don't know about the future of collaboration macro, right? I just know the type of collaboration that we support. Sure. As I said before, it's going to go, it's going to be more and more important as we move from being knowledge workers to imagination workers, right? Where instead of about crunching numbers and doing repetitive tasks, more into imagination and collaboration in creative problem solving, right? So understanding customer needs and coming up with possibilities. So within that realm, as I said before, more and more methodologies, like it's going to be something that we speak Spanish, English, maybe some, some can code, but all of us know the the frameworks and tools to use to innovate. So customer journey maps and so on. Then again, remote work is just like a a spectrum of a pendulum. It's going to be around flexible work and possibility to open up a session wherever you might be. And then, yeah, in the project room, touchscreens everywhere. We won't see 
mean much more like regular paper because again because of hygiene because of many other things we're probably mm. missing a lot of windex uh, to like <laughs> wipe those those screens though and when it comes to us we like to uh, help customers again deployed end to end in the enterprise so we keep on investing in the enterprise readiness we'll also be uh, helping people run better meetings through software, through services, through content, and in particular, this type of generative meetings, workshops that we support. And at its core, Mural metamorphing to more than a whiteboard, right? It's a whiteboard, a th we call it like a visual thinking canvas. And that means tagging content, finding patterns, looking for things that can help you understand a problem better and a guide to your brain. I mean, a helper to your brain. Sounds incredible. I have another series of questions for you, Mariano. As companies who have had zero experience with remote work or relatively little experience with remote work and facilitating that level of collaboration, innovation, in our conversation prepping for the interview, you had mentioned the importance of establishing a common language over quality. And I was wondering if you could explain that idea a little bit more, especially in terms of organizations who are just getting started in terms of embracing this type of visual collaboration and imaginative work. So the early stages of, of this is like establishing which are the methods that you're using, right? And, and training a, a significant part of people on those methods. And instead of like using your workshops to get some rookies up to speed and then the experts get bored, well, make sure that before the workshops, you, you get, give these people the enablement that they need so that they can at least play the basic chords, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we, we shouldn't expect everybody to be amazing at this thing, but play along, participate, contribute, don't be quiet in the back of the room, right? Or the virtual room. So a common visual language. And then when it comes to enabling people on how to work remotely, and in particular in the type of work that we support, don't assume that people are good at this. It's really hard to interact through a screen. For example, right mm -hmm. now, this is probably like podcast number 20 for me, so I'm experienced, but it's really hard for me to be staring at the screen with this software. I have to imagine you wearing a new Eric. It is a cognitive load. I'll be tired after this conversation. We look amazing, by the way, Mariano, just in yeah, case yeah. you need to improve your visualization here. <laughs> but the point is that it's hard to talk to a screen, right? And it's hard to address an audience of more than a couple people through a screen. It's hard to move around in a digital space all while you're being asked to be creative and, you know, positive and so on. So we're, mm -hmm. we generally tell people, unbundle the workshop. Spend some time in advance doing some light, playful games before the meeting to have them be okay moving around the virtual space. And then have them come to the meeting prepared. And then when we're all together which will be shorter periods of time because of time zones and because of the Zoom tiredness that you mentioned, Eric, maximize that together time. Don't use that for presentations. Use it for the real work and keep it compact because you can. Super focus on time boxing. But if you're here, you're fully present for the next one and a half, two hours, 
maybe you need to do a little mini break, like a little energizer. Maybe you'll stand up, stretch, get the creative juices going again, and be mindful of that. So there's many tips also that we collected and we published into a little book. If you go to mural.co slash ebook, it's called the Definitive Guide to Facilitating Remote Workshops, I think it is. And a lot of great stuff that we've been collecting from our clients, but also ourselves. So I would recommend that. So if you think about it, we've all been part of meetings that have been amazingly facilitated. And to your point, Mariano, they unbundle the workshop and they give you time to to move around and they make they they allow the energy of the room to really start to feed the creative process. Your job as an entrepreneur and doing this on, on a visually collaborated platform is to do it remotely, to figure out features and figure out even the future when maybe we're not sitting in front of a screen, when maybe we're using virtual reality, maybe we're using, you know, we're, we're going for a walk in the park and we're engaged in a, a facilitated exercise with our company. Um, there's an amazing future there. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the VR or not VR, maybe at some point, touch screens, I think, big touch screens that I mentioned mm-hmm. are very good. They get the job done if used properly. But when it comes to, yeah, the functionality of our software, definitely there's a lot of magical stuff around like the the UI, the diagrams and so on that we're building. But the things that we get more happy about are little things that help make the experience more playful and more fun. For example, we're about to release a couple of weeks, a celebration feature. Pops up confetti on demand by the facilitator, right? <laughs> But celebrating remotely is super hard. Multiple reasons why. One is like, it's awkward, right? Then people are muted generally instead of like unmuted. So like you make a joke or something and it's silent, which is make, makes awkward, right? Like cheering or high-fiving. It's, you feel a little dorky. But it's important, right? Like in, it's not Huge. just about the creative, creative juices, but also about like once you're done with a decision or a, or a project, then you go, then the, the tough work starts, right? So getting that energy to get going is important. It's a question of how do you combine the tech with those social cues that are so important to, as you say, provide that levity and connection during a meeting. So I think that's a, a really cool feature. Uh, it reminds me of the little features you can do in iMessaging where you can throw confetti or have lasers when you send a particular message, a uh, similar kind of thing. And it just adds a bit of fun. So that's cool. Laughter. How do you get a remote audience to laugh? It's pretty easy to do if you're on stage in front of people, but if you've got people around the world and you're communicating digitally, it's a lot harder. Might be easy for you, Eric, but some people don't have the luxury of being great in front of other people, more of the the shy guys. But we are seeing a lot of the shy guys being funny digitally. Oh, that's cool. Like throwing a little gift in the right moment at the right time, for example. So yeah. it also levels the playing field in terms of that, which I think it's super rewarding. Well, Mariano, thank you for all of this. We're really excited about your company and we're excited about the possibilities that you're bringing from a leadership perspective uh, into this, I'll say it, Aaron, this new normal. Don't say it, Eric. Take it back. <laughs> <laughs> but Aaron, I think we're probably ready for our top picks, right? Yes, everyone, it is time for our usual customer-obsessed picks. 
Mariano, earlier in the podcast, you mentioned Jean Litka, who is a professor at Darden. And so for anyone who wants to dive into design thinking a bit more, she's got a book out called Designing for Growth, a Design Thinking Toolkit for Managers, which is a really great resource. And Mariano, I also wanted to ask if you had any other recommendations. To keep it in, within us, I mean, the, I mean, Jim Kolbach, who's our head of customer experience, just published a book on jobs to be done. So let's give him a, a, a prop there. Awesome. My pick is a book that I checked out digitally from the library just the other week. And it's one I've been wanting to read for a very long time. And it's called So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Oluo, who is a Seattle-based writer, speaker, and as she defines herself, internet yeller. And I have to say, this is one of the most important nonfiction books I have ever read. Racism is a very real, very serious problem across the U.S., and Oluo explores how to talk about race and racism with other people, which is, to be honest, a really uncomfortable topic, and it should be. Sitting with and acknowledging injustice and inequality should never be comfortable. But I will also say that if you're a leader, you cannot pay lip service to diversity and the underlying issue of race and other intersectional challenges that affect who we hire and promote how we work on teams, and the office cultures we create that embrace some and not others. So right now, I feel it's time to get uncomfortable and educate ourselves about these problems and how to talk about them because they're not going away. And believe me, this book is going to make you uncomfortable, but don't push it away. As Alua says in her introduction, sit with your discomfort, explore it, and ask yourself why these ideas make you uncomfortable and how you can grow. And I will say that this is essential reading for everyone, but especially for those in positions of authority and leadership. Wow. That's awesome, Aaron. Thank you for that. I'm going to check it out today. Yeah, you should. It, it's phenomenal. All right, Eric, I might've made that a tough act to follow, but what do you got for us? Yeah, I'm going to dumb it down a little bit, maybe for our audience and for myself here. <laughs> just, <laughs> just for you, our audience is really smart, Eric. I'll put it this way. I, I'll go a little mainstream with it. Those of you that know me know I'm I'm a pretty big sports fan, and I've been loving, and I think it's over now, but I've been loving the Last Dance documentary on Michael Jordan. Did you happen to see that, Aaron? Uh, no, no, I haven't. You didn't watch that, did you? So this is an ESPN series. Those of you that are sports fans, or certainly those of you that are basketball fans know about it. I kind of started turning it on with a little trepidation because this is about Michael Jordan. It's about his final season with the Chicago Bulls when they win their sixth championship. And it's called the last dance because their coach Phil Jackson at the outset of the year was actually told that he wasn't going to be returning as a coach of the Bulls. And that was a management decision. That wasn't Phil's decision. So he started calling the season, the last dance. And uh, it's an incredible look back full disclosure. It was produced for entertainment uh, Michael Jordan was behind a lot of the production of it, so it doesn't tell the full story, I'm sure. But the story it does tell had some incredible leadership moments and had some incredible lessons around leadership that a lot of people probably don't realize or forget. Uh, I think most of us know that for the better part of two decades, Michael Jordan was the most iconic athlete on the planet. And his personal story is a really inspiring one, one based on where he came from and what he did at North Carolina and what he did 
I mean, everyone probably knows the story that Michael Jordan did not make his varsity high school basketball team as a sophomore, which is unheard of. In fact, he may not have made it as a junior either. We need to, we may need to fact check that one. But he went on and had this iconic career and really changed the game. But what people maybe don't remember is that it took him six years with the Chicago Bulls to win a championship. And there was a lot of loss involved in that. They couldn't get past the Detroit Pistons. It was a tremendous amount of work. And just watching this documentary, you realize that he learned from his failure. The team learned from its failure. They had to change the team and they had to continually tweak the team in order to win. And then it's also about winning. It's about what it takes to win. Any business, as grotesque as this sounds, needs to figure out how to win. It is a game. Yeah. Business is a game. Business is, yes, about lives, and it's about economics, and it's about journeys, and it's about relationships. But businesses that survive have figured out how to win in a market with a product, with a brand, with an approach. And it's hard to figure out how to win. And the way the Bulls learned how to win is they figured out why they were losing. And they did a lot of introspection around losses. With that information, they continued to build their team and they brought in a new coach who was Phil Jackson. And he brought in a new style of play, which was called the triangle offense. And the beauty of the triangle offense was it was simple. It was, I mean, we learned about triangles when we were in nursery school. And he applied that simple language to a way of playing basketball that he had learned from others. And it became the tenet for how they went to market. And it became the tenet for how they won. And other teams couldn't figure it out because this team could communicate so well through this simple language. Like we talk about having a simple language in business and staying away from acronyms and having descriptive ways of telling your employees how to work together or, or, or encouraging your employees to work together so that if a new hire shows up tomorrow, the language is easy to pick up, but everyone knows it and everyone's on the same page. And that really came through in this documentary really well. And there was a quote in there that Jordan used at one point, because he was certainly a controversial figure in some respects, and not everyone liked him. But he said, uh, winning has a price, leadership has a price. For those of you that have some extra time, I encourage you to watch this documentary because it, there are a lot of amazing lessons about leadership and about life and about winning, which businesses have to figure out how to do if they're going to survive. So that's mainstream, Aaron. <laughs> well, no, it sounds like a great documentary, Eric, and I'll definitely have to put it on my my list. I do have a bit of time on my hands now that uh, we're all still staying at home and staying safe. So, <laughs> you know, the the other thing that was in there that you just that came through that I don't think anyone realized until and and the thing about this documentary was that 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 last year they actually hired a camera crew to pick up a lot of footage about what was going on during that year, and what you realize is that no one worked harder than Michael Jordan. So he demanded a lot of his teammates. He demanded a lot. And he really, he, I mean, this his competitive drive was just unparalleled. But no one worked harder than he did. And that actually put him in a position where he could pull people along. You know, he wasn't just shouting from the sidelines. He was, he was mm -hmm. walking the walk. It reminds me of that graphic that everyone likes to use where there's one where it says manager and it's got a team pulling along a person sitting on a chair right or a, a large load the person mm -hmm. sitting on top of it and then it has leader and this person is at the front pulling harder than anybody else to help carry that load forward when he started with the bulls they interviewed him as a rookie and 
he said emphatically that we will win a championship in Chicago. And he joined an awful team. Like he joined a team that had never won a championship before and was coming off losing season after losing season after losing season. And this rookie who at the time was probably 19, 20 years old, literally there's an interview. He said, we'll win a championship in Chicago. We'll win several championships in Chicago. So yeah, we talk about setting a vision for an organization that is audacious. We you remember we talk about the difference between having a vision, a strategy, and a plan, and how the vision needs to be audacious. It needs to be disruptive. It needs to say things that are unbelievable. And when he in that interview, I was like, this he's creating the vision for this team. And it took him six years to win one, but then they won six. Well, and cool. again, it just goes back to the power of creating a team, though, right? It can't ever be one all-star. I mean, some teams can be carried that way. Some organizations maybe might find some success, but the ones that have lasting success are those who learn how to work together as a team, who build each other up, who play on each other's strengths, who learn each other's strengths and how to really make them shine and work together. And I think that that's something that people tend to overlook sometimes, right? When they're looking for that all-star, that superstar that's going to win the next big deal. Well, really it's about 100% everyone who's winning deals. It's about everyone who's putting in the time. And so how do you make sure that everyone is carried forward and is allowed to perform at their highest level and is encouraged to do so? And they actually started winning championships when they figured out how to get the ball out of Michael Jordan's hands Mm. instead of constantly having it in his hands. And they actually had had to replace their coach, Doug Collins, with Phil Jackson, who was the one that sat Michael down and said, I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about these other guys. How do we make them better? So in an organization, when you have that superstar, you've got that person that just has raw talent that comes along once in a lifetime. As a leader, your job is to figure out how to distribute that talent throughout the organization. You're not worried about your superstars. You're worried about, okay, we've got this. How do we surround this person with some people that he can start or she can start to rub off on. And Mm -hmm. the Bulls definitely did that. And they didn't start winning until they figured out how to get the ball out of his hands. Even if you don't like basketball or sports, it's a great watch. My wife, Melissa, who does like sports, but she's not a fanatic, doesn't know a whole lot about the NBA. She sat through the whole thing with me. We loved it together. So Mariana, thank you so much for being with us today and congratulations and good luck to Mural in the coming weeks and months and years. And we will follow with great excitement as you continue to build this great company. Thank you guys for the invitation and and helping me spread the word a little bit. It is a tough time for everybody and the more know-how, aggregate know-how out there, the easier it is for all of us to collaborate in changing how people work. So Thanks for the invitation and look forward to being again at some point in the future. Thanks for listening to our interview with Mural CEO Mariano Suarez Batan. If you're a fan of the show, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a customer-obsessed moment.